This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Let me tell you, after being away for a few weeks on vacation in the Rocky Mountains, as glorious as being in those uh, mountains, which really are almost a cathedral of worship. You know, when you're traveling through those mountains and see what God has made, His creation, you, you just are inspired to worship. But it is great to be back among, not the creation, but His creatures. I want you to know I'm really glad to be back. And I'm especially glad being back at this time of year because at this time of year, I can finally smell football. <laughs> you know? You can, you can begin to see a few little articles about this guy and that guy and Hooten's Magazine is out and the predictions and all that. When I was a kid, I used to love that. And I used to remember getting that and then I'd go out on that football field and I'd smell that grass and that dirt. You know, it just smells good. It just reminds me of that little flimsy halfback running around the corner and you nail him. You just bring him down. You know, uh, I tried my hand at coaching a number of years ago. Uh, I uh, was a coach when we lived in Oregon for a couple of years for a high school there. The high school had, was fairly new, had been around for about 10 years. And they desperately needed a coach, and so I accepted that assignment. And when I did, what I inherited was a team with a pretty long and dismal track record. In fact, in the 10 years they'd been in existence, the most they had ever won in any one season was one game. Just one game. The only thing they were really good at was losing. And that was losing big. I mean, real big. By scores of 40 to nothing, 50 to nothing. In fact, their big rival, the Southern High School, they had lost 80 to nothing the year before. So that was my team. And uh, we started in August and they came out and it was really the worst looking wannabe athletes I've ever seen. They didn't know how to get down in even a football stance. And it would have been laughable had it not been for my team. It was my team that was like that. And so we went back to basics in August and all the way through the years. We just practiced the basics. And at the end of that year, we were 1-8 and eight again, which proves I am no Houston nut. Okay? <laughs> but uh, something did change in that year as we went over and over those basics again. At the end of the year you could begin to feel a change. They began to believe. They began to believe in themselves. They began to believe in each other. And the reason for that is because those lopsided scores had kind of disappeared. I mean, we lost, but towards the end of the year, we were losing by, you know, 14 to 6 or 21 to 13 or 8 to 6, things like that. The score had narrowed. And these guys, for the first time, were beginning to believe in themselves. And that next year, I had a part in being a part of a magical season. Not that it was a great season, but they had the first winning record in the history of the school. And during that time, and experiencing that with those young men, seeing their identity change, you know, from being kind of the butt of jokes around the league, to being really a, a respected opponent, and in some cases even a feared opponent, and what that did for the the identities of those young men, let me tell you, that was an extra special experience that I will forever treasure in my heart. 
One game in particular, though, stands out. It was towards the end of the season, we played the defending state champions. And we played them on their home field, at their homecoming, and uh, it was kind of the next level up for our guys. And so we went out, and uh, it came to the last minute of the fourth quarter, and we were ahead six to nothing. They had the ball in our 20-yard line. It was fourth down and 15. And so I decided to call a blitz. They went back to throw a pass. Our defensive end, blitzing in from the left side, tackled him for a loss, game over. Just one play for a whole new identity. Helped that quarterback up off the turf after he had tackled him, kind of patted him console, in a consoling gesture on the helmet, and walked back to the huddle. Meanwhile, the ref threw a flag. And the flag was for flagrantly hitting another player. They got a 15-yard penalty, really 10 yards, half the distance to the goal. Got it on the 10-yard line, first and goal. Scored on the last play of the game, kicked the extra point and beat us 7-6. Now, of course, their team was ecstatic, and our team was crushed. And their team was running off the field, and the referees were running through the exit, and I was running after the referees. <laughs> no, I really was. And I got ahead of them, and I got to the exit before they did, and I turned and I blocked the exit. And they stopped, and with their hometown crowd around this visiting coach, and with those referees standing there wondering what I was going to do because they could tell I was upset. I was red-faced. My eyes were blazing. And I looked at those guys, and I said to them, How could you? How could you steal from these young men I've worked with all year? They're right to have this game. You're not worthy of the uniform that you wear. Then I said some other things. <laughs> That's the best of what I said. <laughs> the only thing I can tell you anyway. But you know, there's a point to all that. And the point is, some things are worth fighting for. They really are. I mean, I know that uh, there's a place to be respectful and those kind of things, but there are places, there are, there are some things that are worth fighting for. And the homer of that team who threw that flag in a way that was totally unjust, it was worth me fighting over that. And I did. Now, I know that shocks some of you, as mild and gentle as I am. <laughs> but this morning, I want to shock you a little more. I want to show you a fight in the Scripture between two apostles. They really did. They had a fight. I want you to open up to Galatians chapter 2. And as you turn there, I want you to know that this is a story of a heated confrontation between the two preeminent apostles. The Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And it was all over a bad call. And it was a bad call. It was so bad it was worth fighting over. I like what uh, the well-respected theologian John Stott has to say about this moment in time. He says, this is without a doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Here are two leading apostles of Jesus Christ in complete and open conflict. I mean, this thing wasn't something that took place behind closed doors. This thing took place in public between these two men. So let's read about it. I want to start in verse 7. Uh, Rick, This was part of Rick's passage last week, but we're going to pick it up just to get a little backdrop. 
As you turn there, let's read verse 7 of Galatians chapter 2. It says, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted, I, Paul, entrusted with the Gospel to the uncircumcised, that is, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, that is, to the Jews. For God, who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and to Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by this hypocrisy. Well, I hope you get a little sense of what's taking place here as you read this passage. It's shocking. It's shocking that you would actually come to a moment that many think could have ruptured the Gospel of Jesus Christ and even ended Christianity as we know it. But we are at such a moment in time. Now, there are four things I want to focus on to help us get a feel for this passage. And if you have a pen, I want you to mark up your Bible a little bit. Four words or phrases I want you to underline. The first is in verse 11. It's the word Cephas. Then also in that same verse, underline Antioch. Then in verse 12, the phrase men from James. And then the other phrase, he began to withdraw. That's also there in verse 12. I want to talk about those words and phrases for just a moment to help us. First of all, the word Cephas. Now you may wonder who that is for some of you who the Scriptures are new to you, but uh, Cephas is just the Aramaic word for Peter. And, a, and in this passage, Paul uses the word Peter and Cephas interchangeably. So don't think of that as two different people. Think of it as the same person. Jesus called Peter Cephas in Aramaic. But that's who that is. But the reason I point that out to you is because I want you to see the connection and I want to go back just for a moment to verse 8. Would you go back to verse 8? And when you see in verse 8, what you're going to notice there is that Paul mentions that his ministry was to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul. And Peter and the other apostles, their focus of ministry was to the Jews. So they had this strategy. They kind of divided their forces and they had two targets and uh, the main body of the apostles were focused on the Jews and Paul and Barnabas towards uh, the Gentiles. But in saying that, I want you to notice something else or at least remember something else with, with me. That message that the Gospel was to go to the Gentiles did not first come to Paul. It first came to Peter. It was Peter who in a vision in Joppa, this little city on the coast of the Mediterranean. He, had this, he fell into a trance and had this vision where God showed him unclean things and told him to eat those things. And he wouldn't do it. And God had to tell him three times, you need to eat that. And he said, why? Because the, and then God said, because the things I say that are clean are clean, even if you think they're unclean. And Peter finally, through a series of events with a centurion, a Gentile centurion in Cornelius, finally understood that the Gospel that he had received as a Jew was not to be held and constricted to just the Jewish culture, but it was for everyone. 
And so it was through Peter, not Paul, that Gentiles were first welcomed into the church. It was through Peter, not Paul, that the first Gentile converts were baptized. It was through Peter, not Paul, that the other apostles were persuaded that the Gospel was not Jewish. The Gospel was no respecter of person, or race, or creed, or color, or gender. It was for everyone. All that came through Cephas. And that's important to know as a backdrop of this passage. Then there's the little word Antioch, which refers to a city in northern Syria. And it was in Antioch, Acts tells us, that these believers, Jew and Gentiles, were first called Christians. That's where the name Christian came from, from the city of Antioch. And the reason I tell you that is because up until that time, anybody who believed the Gospel of Jesus Christ was called a Jew. But because so many Gentile converts came into the church in Antioch, that designation didn't hold up anymore. And so people grasping for a term finally said, we're going to call these people, Jew and Gentile, Christians. And the name stuck, didn't it? It was also the city where Paul kind of expressed the first uh, uh, expression of his own public ministry. He was in Antioch for over a year making disciples of Jew and Gentile. Then notice the phrase in verse 12, men from James. Now that's very important to this passage. Uh, James was the senior pastor, so to speak, of the church in Jerusalem, which was primarily all Jewish. And if you were a Gentile coming into that church, you became a Jew, so to speak. At least that's the way it was for a while. And uh, these men come down from James and they're going to unsettle this church in Antioch. And the sense is when you just get it at the first blush reading, you think they were commissioned by James to do what they did. But when you turn over and read in the book of Acts, especially Acts 15.24, and you might just by that phrase jot down Acts 15.24 so you can remember it. That's not true. They, it was true that these men came from the church in Jerusalem of which James was the pastor. But they didn't come with James's authority, commissioned by James to do what they did. And the reason we know that is because in the book of Acts, Acts 15, when James is speaking about the disturbances that this event caused, he says this, We have heard that some of our numbers to whom we gave no instruction. See the key word? He didn't give any instruction to these guys. We have heard that some of our numbers whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words. So they didn't come from us. They came from us, but not with our authority. But still they came. And when they came, they came preaching Christ too. But they came preaching Christ plus something else. And that's the nature of the heresy that they brought. Uh, they came saying that yes, you need to believe in Jesus Christ just like Peter and Paul and all the rest were teaching, but it's Jesus Christ plus you need to be circumcised and you need to obey certain laws of Moses if you're going to get fully saved. Okay? And you say, well, why is that important to us? Well, because you run into the same thing from time to time. You'll run into people who'll say, uh, do you believe in Christ? Oh yeah, I believe in Christ. Well, have you been baptized? Well, no. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, you need to be. Or... Uh, you think, see, you got your Bible there. Are you a Christian? Oh, yes, I am. What church do you go to? Well, I go to Fellowship Bible Church. Oh. Well, you know, to be fully saved, you need to be in such and such a church. Or as an older man down at McDonald's did for me one morning, he came over and saw me with my Bible, and he asked me if I was a Christian. I said, yeah. And he asked me if I'd been baptized in the Spirit. And I said, yeah. And he said, did you speak in tongues? I said, no. And he went, well, um, I need to talk to you about that, you know. 
And what he proceeded to say is, well, you're not really quite there yet. See, it's Christ plus something. Okay? And so we still have some of that around. Christ plus something. Now, I'm going to tell you later in the message that most of what we're contending with today in the Gospel is not Christ plus something, it's Christ and subtract Him from something. It's lessening the Gospel, not adding to it. But still we see some of that around. That's what these men brought. They brought adding to the Gospel. And um, Peter got caught up in that. You go, how could he do that? We'll talk about that in a moment, but the point is he did. And if you look at verse 13, not only did he get involved in that, but he, because he's a leader, he swept others into it. There was others who joined in the hypocrisy, one of which was this most sensitive guy that we know about in the Scripture named Barnabas, a guy who was really sensitive to people. Even he got swept away. Now here's the question. Why did Peter melt down? Why? I mean, this is a great guy. This is a guy who's received visions, done miracles, walked with Jesus Christ Himself, ushered in the Gentiles into this new kingdom work. Why did he melt down here? And, and maybe even a better question would be, does this mean Peter no longer really believes the Gospel anymore? Does he really believe this uh, Gospel plus something? Has he changed his theology here? Well, the passage goes on and tells us, if you look there, that Peter hadn't, hadn't done that. He's not forsaken the faith, at least in his belief. Because if you'll notice carefully, what Paul challenged or charged Peter with here is not heresy, but what? What's the word? Come on, say it loud. Hypocrisy. And there's a great difference between heresy and hypocrisy. Heresy means you change your beliefs, right? Hypocrisy means that you still believe the right thing, you're just acting contrary to what you believe. And that's what happened to Peter in this situation. He's had a meltdown, not around his belief system, but how he applies his belief system. And the question is, why? Why? Well, in verse 12, there is this little statement. It says, fearing the party of the circumcision. You see it there? When I read that and when I think about Peter's life, it just reminds me. Every person, every person in this room has what is called an Achilles heel. Remember the story of Achilles and the arrow in the little unexposed place on his heel? Every person has an Achilles heel. And what is an Achilles heel? An Achilles heel is a soft spot in your character. It's a soft spot that if you don't guard it carefully, if it's not protected, if you haven't built up a defense system Against, against it being um, unprotected. Then if something hits you out of the blue and hits that soft spot, you buckle. And I think what Paul is touching on here is Peter's Achilles heel. Now everybody has, as I said, is an Achilles heel. Some of you have an Achilles heel where um, uh, you, you have a, an Achilles heel around acceptance. And what that means is, is that if you're in a crowd... And, and somebody starts mocking the Gospel and you haven't really bolstered that area up and protected it, rather than standing firm from the Gospel, you'll just kind of give in to the crowd. You know why you'll give in to the crowd? Because you yearn for acceptance. Some of you have an Achilles heel because you're a peacemaker at all costs. And you can be in a situation where um, people are out of control in your family or they're out of control in your marriage, but rather than do something about it, 
rather than stand firm for what the truth of the Gospel is, you'll continue to compromise and cave in. You know why? Because if that Achilles heel is left unexposed, you cave in because that's your soft spot and you fall back into keeping the peace at any cost, any price. Does that make sense to everybody? Every one of us. Some of it's pleasure. If you, if you don't watch for yourself, if you get around a certain pleasure that's illegal, so soft, if you really haven't shored that up, you'll give up. You'll act irrationally to what you believe. It doesn't mean you didn't, you're not a Christian, but you'll give in to that illegal activity, that unlawful, immoral activity, because that's your Achilles heel. You act contrary to your belief. Peter's Achilles heel, I think, was fear. And I think, and this is just a personal opinion, but I think it was a specific kind of fear. I think it was the fear of failure. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You know, here's a guy who in a certain moment would stand up for Jesus Christ and die for Him. And I think one of the reasons he joined the kingdom effort, just humanly speaking, is because he looked at Jesus Christ and saw success. And he's going to be a part of it. And there he was in the Garden of Gethsemane willing to die, and yet when Jesus was finally arrested and willingly was taken away, and Peter looked at what all was happening, and from a human perspective, felt like everything he had lived for was a failure. Then all that had to happen with that Achilles heel exposed was for a little girl to come around and say, are you one of his disciples? And what did he do? He started cursing. Caved in. Compromised. Became a hypocrite. Because he feared failure. He feared being associated with failure. Even when after Jesus Christ was resurrected and showed Himself to the Apostle Peter, Jesus asked him to do something that would have blown any of us away, and that is to go to the whole world, the Great Commission. I think that was so overwhelming, not just to Peter, but to all those men, that Peter saw that as surefire failure. There's no way we can do that. And so what did Peter do? Well, a few months back, I told you what he did. He went back to the fishing boat. He said, I can't do that. I'll fail at it. So he caved in. Even though he knew he was commissioned to be an apostle, he caved into that and went back fishing. And Christ had to come fish for him and say, that's not what I want you to do. Do you know why he buckled? Because he was afraid. It's like we're afraid. There was this fear that often caused him to act irrationally And I think in this situation, we have another just such instance. Here he is, the apostle to the Jews. He's the leader. He's brave. But these men come down and they begin to say, you know, you're the apostle to us and this this is ruining our traditions and we need this and Moses is important and all this. And if you don't give in to our pressure, our persuasion, you're not going to be held in the same high esteem as you used to be. You're going to be lower than somebody else. You You need to be with us. And somehow they got through to him. I don't know exactly how it was, but he began to believe, I'll be a failure if I don't join my brethren. And so he began to withdraw from these aliens called Gentiles and join their team. Now it was totally irrational. He knew better. But he had this poison dart in that soft spot called the fear of failure And he gave in. Now whether Peter fully comprehended, which I don't think he did at this moment, how much of an impact that would have on the Christian movement, what it could do to the Gospel long term, the future of Christianity, I don't think he had any idea. But if this hypocrisy was left unchecked, 
the gospel, which is the heart and soul of Christianity, which we all know, would be completely undermined. In fact, John Stott says it this way. He says, the whole Christian church would have drifted into a Jewish backwater and stagnated. Or the world would have had a permanent rift between the Jewish Christian church and the Gentile Christian church. So there was a lot at stake at this moment. This was a big moment. And somebody had to step into the gap. And that somebody was the Apostle Paul. A man who had his own Achilles heel, but it certainly wasn't buckling under pressure. <laughs> and he may have had his other problems, but when the pressure was on, it seemed Paul was at his finest. The greater the pressure, the more brightly he would shine. And so with eyes blazing, I think, in public, he personally blocked Peter's path and he said, if I may paraphrase, something like this. He looked at him and squinched his eyes and went, how could you? How could you steal from these people what is rightfully theirs? You are not worthy of the uniform you wear called Apostle. I think that's how it felt. It was face to face and nose to nose. On your outline, I've given you really his real words, his argument, so to speak. Some of it's a little technical, but I want to walk through it real quickly and show you what's at the essence of it because it's important that you hear this. But starting in verse 14, I paraphrase some of these statements that are found in the rest of our text here today. So look at verse 14 for just a moment. Let me read it. Here's what it says. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel, I said to Peter, in the presence of all, Peter, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles, which is what he had been doing before these men came, and not like the Jews, how is it that now you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, you're playing both sides of the fence. <laughs> You've been eating ham sandwiches on the side with this group talking about faith alone. And now all of a sudden, you turn to those same brethren and tell them that they've got to have reconstructive surgery. You can't do that. That's not integrity, which means to join together. That's hypocrisy, which means two different things. Two-faced. It's not going to work. Look at verse 15. He says, Paul goes back and kind of uses an old cliche of sorts. He says, We've been saying for centuries, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. That's another way of just saying, we're the chosen. We're the advantage. We're Jews. We have the law. We're not like those ignorant, blind, stupid Gentiles who don't have what we have. That's what we've been saying. And we considered that an advantage because we had the law. We could be somebody where all they could be without the law is just sinners. But that hadn't been the case, has it, Peter? Over and over again, what does our people teach us by just observing the laws of human nature? Well, it's verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's what we've discovered. After all these centuries, they haven't been justified. We learned that we're justified through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we, in other words, you could put in parentheses, even we Jews, have believed into Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law since here's what we've come to understand, Peter, and you know it. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
Here's the point on your outline. Regardless of our advantage as Jews, the law just simply hasn't worked. (laughs) It hasn't saved us. It couldn't save us. The law is a failure. Some of you may have read this week, it happened on Monday in Philadelphia where Sergei Khrushchev became a U.S. citizen. Some of you younger people won't know this, but uh, Sergei is the son, the 50-year-old son, of Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of Russia, the Soviet Union, during the missile crisis and when communism was rampant around the world. He was the one in the UN who took his shoe off, he was very flamboyant, pounded it on the desk, and told the West, and America in particular, these famous words, we will bury you. And on Monday, his son was holding up his hand and pledging allegiance to the United States. Now how foolish if right after he did that, he were to go back and be a proponent of communism. See, he knows communism has failed. And he's moving forward. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 16. He says, the law has failed. So why would we go back there? Let's move forward with faith in Christ. Look at verse 17, probably the most difficult verse. It says, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. If I could retranslate that, basically Paul's saying, listen Peter, if what you're saying by withdrawing from these Gentiles, that we who stay with the Gentiles are sinners because we're associating with them. That's what Christ told us what to do. He told you to tell us to do that. So that means Christ, rather than being a minister of redemption, is actually inspiring sin by having us go to these people who are sinners. Is that what you want to say? That Christ causes us to sin? Of course, He answers it in the text. He says, may it never be. Then look at verse 18. He says, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, which is the law, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, do you want me to go back like you and try to start self-justifying myself when we know that hasn't worked? If I go back and try to start proving myself under the law, you know what the law is going to do? It's going to do what it did to our people for thousands of years. It's only going to point out you're a transgressor. All the law does is just show my sin. It doesn't approve me. Peter, do you want to know what works? Here's the truth. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law. I finally gave up on that way of life. It wore me out. I never felt approved by God. And you didn't either. So I died to that so that I could do what? Live to God. And once I live to God, here's what works. Verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. This is what works, Peter. It's no longer I who live. I've learned that. I've given up on my life. I've been crucified in my sin. Now I let Christ live in me. And the life that I now live, I don't live by religion. I just simply live by faith in Christ. His Word. And I let Him make a new life for me. So that the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who I know loves me and gave Himself up for me. That's what I know. That's what you need to hear. And I'm standing in your way, Peter, face to face. I'm calling you a condemned man in how you're acting. You know why? Because some things are worth fighting for. Now you know what our text doesn't tell us? Doesn't tell us the rest of the book. Doesn't tell us, well, what happened after that? Don't you want to know what happened after that? What happened? 
Well, I want you to turn to Acts 15 because it tells us what happened. And as you turn to Acts 15, I want you to know that Acts 15 starts in the city of Antioch with people being disturbed by, by these legalists from Jerusalem. And then it proceeds to Jerusalem itself, back to the mothership. But I want you to read with me chapter 15, verse 1. It says, And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, the brethren who are in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, there's that great dissension that we just understood, and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others, and I think within that certain others is Cephas, should go up to Jerusalem, that is the church from which these Judaizers came, these legalists, to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Now look at verse 4. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sects of the Pharisees who had believed, that is, believed in Jesus Christ, stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. There's the problem. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, now stop right there and look at me. Much debate. See, this is a critical turning point in church. You can't just read by that. I want you to think of hours in a room together. I want you to think of guys walking out on each other. Guys slamming their fist on the table saying, no, that isn't right. They have this great debate. Finally, one stands up who brings all this into sharp clarity and brings resolve. And you know who you'd expect it to be? Paul, who was sent to the Gentiles. But in the midst of this heated debate, look at the next word in verse 7. But after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And this is after the events that we just talked about, this confrontation. And it was Peter who said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did also to us. And He made no distinction, none, between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now there's a coach who just ran across the field and got in the face of the referees. And then he concluded with verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Wow. Now let me tell you, you know what made Peter great? I, I love Peter. But you know what made Peter great? This apostle, this guy who received revelation from God, this guy who did miracles, he had walked on water, and one day he would die upside down on a cross in Rome for his faith. What made him great, and I want you to listen very carefully, was not because being an apostle meant being perfect. In fact, being an apostle didn't even mean you were right all the time. In fact, being an apostle meant that sometimes you could look like an utter fool and make stupid mistakes and be confronted and humiliated in front of all your friends for your teaching of hypocrisy. Does everybody understand that? That was Peter. Two of his greatest sins, denying Christ and distorting the Gospel, have been included in the Scripture so we can look at his evil all the days of our life. So what made him great? Because apostle meant perfect? No, because apostle meant 
repentant. You know what makes people great spiritually? They're able to utter the words, I'm sorry a lot. That's what makes them great. That's what makes a church great when its people are not proud and arrogant and elitist and say, now if you come to our church, you can really get it. Okay? Now, what makes those people great is because they recognize they're still sinners. And when they make stupid mistakes and they say dumb things and they get caught in their hypocrisy, they have the unique ability of coming back to the throne of grace and going, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I'll correct my path. That's what made Peter great. I want you to know there are two lessons we can learn from the text this morning. I want to mention them here as we close. The first is this. Protecting the Gospel. I know some of us don't think this is a big issue. Uh, Rick mentioned this last week and I want to second it again this morning. But protecting the Gospel is a very serious issue. It's a very relevant issue. It's worth fighting for. And that's because it alone answers the vexing question every person in every age, in every city, including Haiphong as well as Little Rock, is asking. And that is, how can I be accepted before a holy and just God? Did you know that is a common denominator of every culture of every age? There is a sense of my unworthiness because I'm aware of my failure. And there is a sense that God is holy and how will He accept me? That's so important. And here's what I want you to hear. Except for New Testament Christianity, every religion in the world and every moral system that's ever been created gives the same answer. Except Christianity. Every one of those gives the same answer. And here's the answer. You've got to work for it. You've got to work. Your ancestor, you've got to bow down to your ancestor and you've got to work for his pleasure. And so when we scan across the world today, what we're going to find, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witness, Islam, Judaism, whatever it may be, the answer is work. 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 Except for New Testament Christianity. When you come to that, it stands unique among all the rest. And Paul would look at all those systems and he would say, but the Scripture says this, it says, by the works of the law. It didn't have to be the Jewish law. It could be the Koran. It could be the teachings of Buddha or Confucius or Joseph Smith or whoever else. It could be any of those men. But the answer is the same. By the works of law. Trying to justify yourself to be good enough for God. No flesh. No person. At any time. At any place. None will be justified you'll be found guilty because of that very law you seek to approve yourself by. You know, today there are many who are worried about our Gospel within our domain called the church. So much so that um, they feel like the Gospel is being watered down. Remember I said at the first that in Paul's day they were trying to add to the Gospel. I think we try to subtract from the Gospel. Make it less than it really says. So there are those in the church who present the Gospel as only one of many ways to heaven. They present the Gospel. But they declare it to be only one of many ways to get to God. Or some in the church present a Gospel stripped of the consequences if you don't embrace it. They say you need to believe the Gospel. They're real good on the Gospel. But if you don't believe it, eh, 
That's okay. There's no real consequences with not believing it. And they preach that gospel. There are some who present a gospel without a real bodily resurrection. Yeah, we believe the gospel, but you know, all these other things are, well, those are just stories. Some present a gospel that denies that Jesus Christ was the substitutionary atonement for all sin. They see him as just doing a good deed there. We need to follow him. That's their gospel. So the gospel gets watered down, changed. It takes a different hue and color. That's in our day. And whether by ignorance or just simply unbelief, more and more Christian leaders who are recognizing what's taking place across the country are saying, listen, church, you need to be very clear about what the gospel really is. And then decide if you really, really believe it. In fact, a document has been penned in the last year by a number of Christian leaders and signed by a great host of Christian leaders declaring what the gospel is and isn't. And some of the signees have been people like uh, Chuck Colson, Harold O.J. Brown, uh, Kay Arthur, D. James Kennedy, Bill Bright, Tim LaHaye, John McArthur, John Stott, Chuck Swindoll, and others. And they, they, they signed this document because they want the church that's going into the 21st century to hold firm to the core of Christianity, the Gospel. Because if we waver on that, if we begin to water it down, well, some things are worth fighting for. Let me just read you a few of the statements of this affirmation list. For instance, one of them says this, We affirm that the Gospel diagnoses the universal human condition as one of sinful rebellion against God, which if unchanged will lead each person to eternal loss under God's condemnation. We deny any rejection of the fallenness of human nature or any assertion of the natural goodness of the human race. That is part of the Gospel. He says, uh, or this document says, we affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, the only mediator between God and humanity. We deny that anyone is saved in any other way than by Jesus Christ and His Gospel. The Bible offers no hope that sincere worshipers of other religions will be saved without personal faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's important because there are some here today in the church who are wavering at that point. We affirm that Christ's saving work includes both His life and His death on our behalf. We deny that our salvation was achieved merely or exclusively by the death of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Without reference or belief to His life of perfect righteousness. We affirm that saving faith includes mental assent to the content of the Gospel, acknowledgement of our own sin and need, and personal trust and reliance upon Christ and His work. We deny that saving faith includes only mental acceptance of the Gospel. And that justification is secured by a mere outward profession of faith. Now those statements are there to help keep the Gospel pure in an age that is beginning to shift and change colors in regards to what the Gospel is really teaching. Now if you want a full statement of that document that leaders around the world are signing, you can get it on the World Wide Net. Okay, www.christianity.net. It's up there on the outline. If you'd like to download that and take that home or bring that into your home. Now, here's a second lesson. It's not just that uh, you know the Gospel, protecting the Gospel is a serious issue, but embracing the Gospel is a highly personal issue. Look at verse 20 just for a second. When you look at verse 20 of chapter 2, all you see are personal pronouns. And the reason all you see is personal pronouns is because the Gospel is highly 
personal. It is the most personal and intimate thing that you can ever embrace in your life. It's not something that can be casually, like the text says, just given mental assent to. You can just get it by going to church or doing a few things at church. It's a highly personal issue. And what I especially like about verse 20 is it shows the Gospel, the real Gospel, and listen very carefully, is more than just trying to go to heaven, earn God's acceptance so I can know I'm secure. That's not the Gospel. That's part of the Gospel. But that's not the whole Gospel. I want you to write this down. In fact, we'll put it on the screen. It's this. In believing the Gospel, you not only give up like Paul trying to earn God's acceptance, but here's here's another huge part of it. You also give up trying to make your own life. There are a lot of people who've grown up in the church who find the first part just kind of natural. You know, they taught in Sunday school, believe in Jesus, and He died for your sins. My son, every time he prays at the table, always includes, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, I can go to heaven. Amen. And right now, that's the Gospel. And he's just a young guy, but what I'd like to do is reach into his soul and say, but you know what? There is so much more to that Gospel. Because that Gospel... He's going to ask of you in faith to do something that's much bigger than just that. And that is that you're going to ask Jesus Christ to make your life. See, what we like to do is believe we're going to heaven and we got that secure and we think that's the Gospel and then we go over here and make our life. We don't do a real good job of it, but we try. And we work hard at it. And sometimes we wear out under that. And it beats us down. And sometimes when we're 30 or 40 after it's beaten us down enough, we look back and we're not even sure if we became a Christian back then because of what we're doing right now. Trying to make our own life. But we believe we're going to heaven. But the Gospel is not just about getting your sins forgiven. It's about Jesus Christ making you alive. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live I don't make it on my own terms with my own priorities, my own constructs, my own directions. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's the Gospel. You know, I have enjoyed this week dialoguing with a young man in another state who used to go to this church by email. We've just kind of been talking. And he's had this rich discovery of which I'm speaking. Grew up here. Believed in Jesus Christ here. Did almost everything this church asked him to do. Attended about everything he can do. But this week, he wrote me on an email that he accepted Christ this week. But he did it different. His embrace of Christ was not just as a way of going to heaven. His embrace of Christ was for the first time he understood that, you know, really believing the Gospel is giving it up and asking God to make your life for you. And beginning to walk by faith in that direction, learning what that means. It's been revolutionary for him. His emails are just electric. Here's what he said in one of his emails. He said, you know, my mom asked me this morning if I thought I was a Christian before I asked Christ into my life this week. It hit me for the first time. Even though I thought I had become one back in Les Huey days. Les Huey used to be our youth pastor. He was under Les Huey. Even though I thought I'd become one back in the Les Huey days, there was never any kind of fruit in my life that indicated that I'd been a Christian. With all the Sundays at this church, going through the one-to-one three times, 
Bible studies, men's fraternity graduate. You know, as I think about it, I'm not 100% sure. I assume now that I wasn't because I've lived in this self-absorbed shell for so many years. I kept trying to rededicate my life in the bad times to the Lord, but I've discovered that in fact, I hadn't ever released my life to Him in the first place. And you know what that's called? The Gospel. The good news. It's looking at Jesus Christ and saying, I just don't need eternal life. I need a life. And I'm willing to give up and be crucified with Christ, not just for my sins, but have my will crucified and my wants crucified so that the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And anything less than that, it's a distortion of the real thing. And I want you to know that's worth fighting for. If you've never done that, this morning as we close, I want you to give, give you an opportunity to do that. So would you bow your heads? And I just want to close by saying there are some of you in this room who maybe are looking at your life and saying, you know, my life is as barren as that guy's. I've been in a self-absorbed shell. It's starting to make sense to me that the Gospel is more than just kind of a... Well, it's simple, but, but at the same time, I haven't thought of it as my life. This morning you need to if you want the real thing. So pray with me. Father, I thank You this morning just again for the truth of Your Word and for those who this morning may be here and for whatever reason, just sitting and listening, they question whether they're a Christian or not. The proof may be in there. Or maybe the truth of the Gospel that it's Jesus Christ warning our lives. Suddenly, finally, it's found a place in the soul and it makes sense. If you find yourself like that this morning, all you have to do is cast yourself on Jesus Christ saying, Lord, I need You. I'm willing to do it Your way. I want Your life as well as Your death. I want the forgiveness of sin and I want the freedom of a new adventure with You. I embrace the Gospel. I want to be crucified with Christ. I want to live by faith in Him who gave Himself up for me. Not just believe that He's going to deliver me. Help me to do that. I give myself to You. Father, I thank You that for anyone who has done that, for anyone who said that sincerely in their heart, a life-changing reformation is in store because You honor real faith in a real Gospel because You're a real God. And we praise You for that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.